Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 1 On the Creature Called Man Chapter 7 The War of the Gods and the Demons Part 2 The ancient religion of Italy was on the whole that mixture which we have considered under the head of mythology. Save that where the Greeks had a natural turn for the mythology, the Latins seemed to have had a real turn for religion. Both multiplied gods, yet they sometimes seemed to have multiplied them for almost opposite reasons. It would seem sometimes as if the Greek polytheism branched and blossomed upwards like the boughs of a tree, while the Italian polytheism ramified downward like the roots. Perhaps it would be truer to say that the former branches lifted themselves lightly, bearing flowers, while the latter hung down, being heavy with fruit. I mean that the Latins seemed to multiply gods to bring them nearer to men, while the Greek gods rose and radiated outwards into the morning sky. What strikes us in the Italian cults is their local and especially their domestic character. We gain the impression of divinities swarming about the house like flies, of deities clustering and clinging like bats about the pillars or building like birds under the eaves. We have a vision of a god of roofs and a god of gateposts, of a god of doors and even a god of drains. It has been suggested that all mythology was a sort of fairy tale, but this was a particular sort of fairy tale which may truly be called a fireside tale or a nursery tale because it was a tale of the interior of the home, like those which make chairs and tables talk like elves. The old household gods of the Italian peasants seem to have been great, clumsy, wooden images, more featureless than the figurehead which Quilp battered with the poker. This religion of the home was very homely. Of course, there were other less human elements in the tangle of Italian mythology. There were Greek deities superimposed on the Roman. There were, here and there, uglier things underneath. Experiments in the cruel kind of paganism, like the Arician rite of the priest slaying the slayer. But these things were always potential in paganism. They are certainly not the peculiar character of Latin paganism. The peculiarity of that may be roughly covered by saying that if mythology personified the forces of nature, this mythology personified nature as transformed by the forces of man. It was the god of the corn and not of the grass, of the cattle and not the wild things of the forest. In short, the cult was literally a culture, as when we speak of it as agriculture. With this, there was a paradox which is still for many the puzzle or riddle of the Latins. With religion running through every domestic detail like a climbing plant, there went what seems to many the very opposite spirit, the spirit of revolt. Imperialists and reactionaries often involve Rome as the very model of order and obedience. But Rome was the very reverse. The real history of ancient Rome is much more like the history of modern Paris. It might be called, in modern language, a city built out of barricades. It is said that the gate of Janus was never closed because there was an eternal war without. 
it is almost as true that there was an eternal revolution within. From the first plebeian riots to the last servile wars, the state that imposed peace on the world was never really at peace. The rulers were themselves rebels. There is a real relation between this religion in private and this revolution in public life. Stories nonetheless heroic for being hackneyed remind us that the Republic was founded on a tyrannicide that avenged an insult to a wife, that the tribunes of the people were re-established after another which avenged an insult to a daughter. The truth is that only men to whom the family is sacred will ever have a standard or a status by which to criticize the state. They alone can appeal to something more holy than the gods of the city, the gods of the hearth. That is why men are mystified in seeing that the same nations that are thought rigid in domesticity are also thought restless in politics. For instance, the Irish and the French. It is worthwhile to dwell on this domestic point, because it is an exact example of what is meant here by the inside of history, like the inside of houses. Merely political histories of Rome may be right enough in saying that this or that was a cynical or cruel act of the Roman politicians. But the spirit that lifted Rome from beneath was the spirit of all the Romans, and it is not a cant to call it the ideal of Cincinnatus passing from the Senate to the plow. Men of that sort had strengthened their village on every side, had extended its victories already over Italians and even over Greeks, when they found themselves confronted with a war that changed the world. I have called it here the War of the Gods and Demons. There was established on the opposite coast of the Inland Sea a city that bore the name of the New Town. It was already much older, more powerful, and more prosperous than the Italian town, but there still remained about it an atmosphere that made the name not inappropriate. It had been called New because it was a colony like New York or New Zealand. It was an outpost or settlement of the energy and expansion of the great commercial cities of Tyre and Sidon. There was a note of the new countries and colonies about it, a confident and commercial outlook. It was fond of saying things that rang with a certain metallic assurance, as that nobody could wash his hands in the sea without the leave of the new town. For it depended almost entirely on the greatness of its ships, as did the two great ports and markets from which its people came. It brought from Tyre and Sidon a prodigious talent for trade, and considerable experience of travel. It brought other things as well. In a previous chapter, I have hinted at something of the psychology that lies behind a certain type of religion. There was a tendency in those hungry for practical results, apart from poetical results, to call upon spirits of terror and compulsion, to move Acheron in despair of bending the gods. There is always a sort of dim idea that these darker powers will really do things, with no nonsense about it. In the interior psychology of the Punic peoples, this strange sort of pessimistic practicality had grown to great proportions. In the new town, which the Romans called Carthage, as in the parent cities of Phoenicia, the god who got things done bore the name 
of Moloch, who was perhaps identical with the other deity whom we know as Baal, the Lord. The Romans did not at first quite know what to call him or what to make of him. They had to go back to the grossest myth of Greek or Roman origins and compare him to Saturn devouring his children. But the worshippers of Moloch were not gross or primitive. They were members of a mature and polished civilization, abounding in refinements and luxuries. They were probably far more civilized than the Romans. And Moloch was not a myth. Or, at any rate, his meal was not a myth. These highly civilized people really met together to invoke the blessing of heaven on their empire by throwing hundreds of their infants into a large furnace. We can only realize the combination by imagining a number of Manchester merchants with chimney-pot hats and mutton-chop whiskers going to church every Sunday at 11 o'clock to see a baby roasted alive. The first stages of the political or commercial quarrel can be followed in far too much detail, precisely because it is merely political or commercial. The Punic Wars looked at one time as if they would never end, and it is not easy to say when they ever began. The Greeks and the Sicilians had already been fighting vaguely on the European side against the African city. Carthage had defeated Greece and conquered Sicily. Carthage had also planted herself firmly in Spain, and between Spain and Sicily the Latin city was contained and would have been crushed, if the Romans had been of the sort to be easily crushed. Yet the interest of the story really consists in the fact that Rome was crushed. If there had not been certain moral elements, as well as the material elements, the story would have ended where Carthage certainly thought it had ended. It is common enough to blame Rome for not making peace, but it was a true popular instinct that there could be no peace with that sort of people. It is common enough to blame the Roman for his Delenda est Carthago, Carthage must be destroyed. It is commoner to forget that, to all appearance, Rome itself was destroyed. The sacred savor that hung round Rome forever, it is too often forgotten, clung to her partly because she had risen suddenly from the dead. Carthage was an aristocracy, as are most of such mercantile states. The pressure of the rich on the poor was impersonal, as well as irresistible. For such aristocracies never permit personal government, which is perhaps why this one was jealous of personal talent. But genius can turn up anywhere, even in a governing class. As if to make the world's supreme test as terrible as possible, it was ordained that one of the great houses of Carthage should produce a man who came out of those gilded palaces with all the energy and originality of Napoleon coming from nowhere. At the worst crisis of the war, Rome learned that Italy itself, by a military miracle, was invaded from the north. Hannibal, the grace of Baal, as his name ran in his own tongue, had dragged a ponderous chain of armaments over the starry solitudes of the Alps, and pointed southward to the city which he had been pledged by all his dreadful gods to destroy. Hannibal marched down the road to Rome and the Romans who rushed to war with him felt as if they were fighting with a magician. 
two great armies sank to right and left of him into the swamps of the Trebia. More and more were sucked into the horrible whirlpool of Cannae. More and more went forth, only to fall in ruin at his touch. The supreme sign of all disasters, which is treason, turned tribe after tribe against the falling cause of Rome, and still the unconquerable enemy rolled nearer and nearer to the city. And following their great leader, the swelling cosmopolitan army of Carthage passed like a pageant of the whole world. The elephants shaking the earth like marching mountains, and the gigantic Gauls with their barbaric panoply, and the dark Spaniards girt in gold, and the brown Numidians on their unbridled desert horses wheeling and darting like hawks, and whole mobs of deserters and mercenaries and miscellaneous peoples. And the grace of Baal went before them. The Roman augurs and scribes who said in that hour that it brought forth unearthly prodigies, that a child was born with the head of an elephant, or that stars fell down like hailstones, had a far more philosophical grasp of what had really happened than the modern historian who can see nothing in it but a success of strategy concluding a rivalry in commerce. Something far different was felt at the time and on the spot as it is always felt by those who experience a foreign atmosphere entering their own, like a fog or a foul savor. It was no mere military defeat. It was certainly no mere mercantile rivalry that filled the Roman imagination with such hideous omens of nature herself becoming unnatural. It was Moloch upon the mountain of the Latins, looking with his appalling face across the plain. It was Baal who trampled the vineyards with his feet of stone. It was the voice of Tanit, the invisible, behind her trailing veils, whispering of the love that is more horrible than hate. The burning of the Italian cornfields, the ruin of the Italian vines, were something more than actual. They were allegorical. They were the destruction of domestic and fruitful things, the withering of what was human before that inhumanity that is far beyond the human thing called cruelty. The household gods bowed low in darkness under their lowly roofs, and above them went the demons upon a wind from beyond all walls, blowing the trumpet of the Tramontane. The door of the Alps was broken down, and in no vulgar but a very solemn sense, it was hell let loose. The war of the gods and demons seemed already to have ended, and the gods were dead. The eagles were lost, the legions were broken, and in Rome nothing remained but honor and the cold courage of despair. Tis the gift to be simple, tis the gift to be free, tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.